0: Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present *Lachaim*, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now, here is your host, Rabbi Mark Golub. I'm Mark Golub, and if you're deeply committed to the well-being and future of the State of Israel, You most probably have a strong appreciation for the young men and women who serve in the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. As most of you know, military service in Israel is not an option, but an obligation. Virtually every high school student in Israel knows that upon graduation, they won't be going to college or taking a year off to travel abroad, they know they'll be entering some unit of the IDF. If they're male, it'll be for three years. If they're female, for two years. And while there are now options for public service, such as working in Israeli hospitals for two or three years, the vast majority of Israeli youth will be serving in some capacity in the Israeli army. They're asked to give themselves to protect and defend their families and the Jewish state. And they serve knowing they may be put in harm's way in defense of Israel. And parents spend sleepless nights worrying about the safety and well-being of their children serving on the front lines, especially during conflicts. I'm always bemused by the ignorance of those who act as if Israelis don't want to make peace with the Palestinians or with any other part of the Arab world. Every Israeli generation of parents hopes and prays that their children or their grandchildren will be the last generation to have this obligation of military service thrust upon them. And while there are those who demonize the IDF and portray the IDF and the, so the kids, Jewish kids as callous and cruel, brutalizing innocent Palestinians. I have only been overwhelmed by the loveliness and maturity of the Israeli soldiers I have met personally. And they all share an incredible ethic, a sense of morality, that applies even in battle, even if it puts them at a military disadvantage. And they speak of the Palestinians, without a trace of hatred, or condescension. And I know I haven't spoken to every Israeli soldier, and nothing in life is all good, all white, all pure. There are bad apples in every group, but I tell you in all honesty, I have never experienced personally meeting a young Israeli in the IDF, or for that matter, a career officer in the IDF, who has not impressed me and for whom I have grown to have both affection and the highest regard. And because my experience is shared by the overwhelming number of American Jews who have the good fortune to meet and know these extraordinary young Israelis, it's not surprising that the American Jewish community is deeply committed to their personal welfare. And one of the most successful and well known organizations dedicated to the welfare of the men and women of the IDF is known by the name FIDF, the Friends of the IDF, a nonprofit organization which was started by a group of Holocaust survivors way back in 1981 when they had rather modest goals to raise some money to assist IDF soldiers with their expenses once their tour of service was over but which has grown to the point where an annual FIDF gala dinner in New York or Los Angeles or elsewhere in this country can raise as much as $30 million and more in a night to fund a host of efforts for IDF soldiers in the field, as well as educational and vocational programs for IDF veterans. And I'm very proud to say that on JBS, we had a trip to Israel. Members of my Havurot also joined in. Some friends came with us. And we ended up donating a mobile gym for soldiers to use for recreation. And I'm sure you've seen over the years, JBS's exclusive television coverage of FIDF galas, including a Zoom gala in 2020, hosted by FIDF's dedicated president, who also happens to be a longtime personal friend, Peter Weintraub. But like any successful organization, in addition to a dedicated lay leadership, And constituency, there needs to be strong professional leadership at the top. And the FIDF has been run by a series of outstanding career military generals who've done an outstanding job as national directors growing the FIDF into the organization it is today. But now the FIDF has a new national director and CEO who brings a very different background to the position. He is the first FIDF national director who is not a general, nor do I believe he's ever served in the IDF. Rather, he is a rabbi with smicha from Yeshua University who has a most impressive background in Jewish organizational life, most recently having served with distinction for 11 years as Managing Director of the Orthodox Union. It is a pleasure for me to introduce to you the new National Director of the Friends of the IDF, Rabbi Stephen Weil, And Steve, thank you so much for joining us on Chaim and JBS. And I want to begin by wishing you all good success in your new leadership role with the IDF, FIDF.
1: Thank you. It's a real honor and a privilege to be with you, Mark, on JBS. And thank you for the opportunity.
0: That's sweet of you to say. Uh, Unfortunately, we've never met before. And... It's a pleasure to meet you. By the way, you know, I read your bio, and I hope I mean this as a compliment. I thought you'd be much older. You're so young to have accomplished everything you've accomplished. So mazal tov for you there. I want to talk first about, about you. Um, Steve, where were you born, and who were your parents, and do you have any siblings, and what kind of Jewish home were you raised in?
1: So I'm a farm boy were German Jewish refugees. And, you know, the family in Germany, it's known as Unterfranken, Lower Franconia, the area around Würzburg. So for about 300 years, we were in the same town in the cattle business. And of course, when National Socialism came, and many of the branches, they were actually the guinea pigs. They were the ones in March of 42 that were shipped from Würzburg to Belgez. You know, in Belgez, which is infamous for the annihilation of Galician Jewry. But to make sure the gas chambers worked, the carbon monoxide worked. The, first, the very first killed there were German Jews and many of them were the branches of my family. But one branch escaped to, one brother escaped to Brazil, one escaped to Scotland. My grandfather, grandmother and, and my father was a young boy at the time. They made it to the, through England to the United States. So when they came to the States, You know, they heard that there were cattle areas in Wisconsin, they had no idea if there were any Jews there. They also heard in the Buffalo area, upstate New York was cattle country, dairy country. And that's where they settled. And I grew up, you know, my family in Germany called a fee handler, buy and sell livestock. You know, we have dairy farms, crop farms. And um, I, I can tell you this, probably my first experience to Israel, my father, we were the only Jews in about a 40 mile radius. What was it? What town was little, it? A little town called Lindenville. Okay. Maybe if, if, you go, if you go east for 60 miles, you'd hit Rochester. If you go west for 40 miles, you'd hit Niagara Falls. Got it. Yeah. And uh, most of our customers and most of the people that lived where we grew up were either Lutheran, Methodist, or Baptist. Very few Catholics, almost no Blacks, and we were the only Jews. Got it. And uh, my father, you know, I'd go in the cattle truck as a little kid, a little Stevie wheel with my father. When he made money for our customers, the payback always was, he wanted to sell them an Israel bond. He said, look, I'm gonna guarantee you the principal, I'm gonna guarantee you the interest, but you know Isaiah better than I do. It's something you study in your church every Sunday, it's something you read with your family. It's the first time in the annals of all human history that after two millennia, a group of refugees has returned to its ancestral homeland. I want you to be part of the dream. So, so my Zionism really was a function of sitting with my father, selling Israel bonds oh, to our customers.
0: How, how lovely. What was your father's name? It all depends. If, if you were a member of the family,
1: it was Werner Fritz. If you were someone who lived in upstate New York, it was Billy. Okay.
0: And your mother's name? My mom is
1: Cookie. She's a Buffalo
0: girl, a Jewish girl from Buffalo. Your father from Germany married a buffalo girl
1: that was the closest place they were jews <laughs>
0: <laughs> very very what's her name
1: well she goes by cookie her technical name is her formal name is carolyn okay but they all know her as cookie
0: very nice billy and cookie and did you have do you have siblings younger brother andy what's he do in life
1: so he's a cfo of a one of wpp's companies that does the. He used to be an executive at Ford, and he was recruited about fourteen years ago to be the CFO of the marketing firm that does all the marketing for Ford and
0: for Mazda. Got it's it. It's called GTB. Okay. And what? What? Your father was a German Jew. Your mother is an American Jew. From this is not in any way pejorative, but the way it said the she was some of the sticks. She was from a major urban center. So what kind of Jewish home? What was the texture, flavor, Jewish home, especially you're the only Jewish family in, in town. What was the Jewish flavor of your home growing up? So I'll tell you two
1: things. It was our home and my grandparents, my father's parents. When, when my father got married, he moved into the main farm and they moved on to one of our heifer farms. You know, if you were forced to leave and they only allowed you to take one suitcase, what would you put in it? So they took, it's called the Rudelheim, the German sitter, the German Machser, the German Jewish Sitter and Machser. So they grew up, yeah, I, I always remember those Rudelheim Siddur that that's all that we could take, that and a few pictures from Germany. Um, in my home, I would say this, we, there was in a town called Batavia, New York, There's no reason anyone should know know Batavia other than Chobani, it was its original headquarters was in Batavia. Um, And what happened was the rabbi there, conservative rabbi by the name of Rabbi David Silverman. Part of the fame of David Silverman is his son, Jerry, became the head of JFNA. was before that was the head of Jewish camping. That's right. So Rabbi Silverman, my parents would pay him, and he would drive over an hour to teach myself and my brother how to read and write hebrew to give us hebrew lessons and how to read the Davin and from the sitter etc and it was very interesting because he would bring jerry with so one kid would have an hour with rabbi silverman the other got to learn how to play football from jerry you know he taught us how to run
0: pass routes marvelous just marvelous by the way are you friends with jerry now We're still good friends. I can imagine. I can only imagine. We
1: get together for the Patriots-Bills game. So for the last number of years, I've always suffered. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. This year, it's turning the other way.
0: I don't know. I hope it's better for you. So, but I still don't get a sense for, in other words, there's no synagogue in your town, right? No, in Buffalo and Batavia. Okay. That was it. On Friday night, was there a somewhat traditional Shabbat? Was there a Shabbat dinner? no
1: so my my grandparents they kept they observed shabbat our home we observed kosher and we always had a friday night dinner and then that was the one that was the one time a week we would say the birkatamazon afterwards yes we made you know we have kiddush hamotzi we have a meal together bench afterwards later you know as as i started to become more educated my brother my father would not work Shabbos morning. He would stay home and he got different books on the Parsha. He would daven, study the Parsha. But there so, was no synagogue for you to go to, was there? No, we would drive. It was about five and a half hours. We would drive to Grossinger's for Rosh Hashanah. Yes. And we would go to Batavia, New York, for
0: Yom Kippur. And did you have a bar mitzvah ceremony? Yes, I did. Where? That was in Buffalo. Do you in, have more memories about it?
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you what we did, because my we had we had some observant relatives who survived, lived in the New York area, and we made my bar mitzvah and my brother's bar mitzvah, not at, when we were technically bar mitzvah, but they waited till there would be a Rosh Chodesh on a weekend, like a Sunday or Monday rush Chodesh. That way the, the relatives from New York could come and we could all go to synagogue together.
0: Yes, and for people who don't understand, the Torah can be read on Rosh Chodesh, but it's not a Yom Tov, so you can travel. Um, you lost family in the Shoah. When I say you, you you're really the next generation. But it sounds like your father did lose family in the Shoah, yes?
1: Yeah. In fact, we, we go back to Germany. I tried this year because of COVID, I couldn't. But I, I go back to Germany every year to our hometown where we lived for 300 years. I have a relationship with the mayor, with some of the people there. You know, in Europe they have the, the Stumpelstein, you know, the stumbling stone. So all of the places where our family live, there's a Stumpelstein. They keep up the synagogue, they keep up the cemetery and we keep close relations with people from the town. They've actually, they've they've researched the Gestapo records on my grandfather who survived, on my great uncles who did not survive. So they, they've given me those Gestapo records. So we try to keep that connection.
0: By the way, that's so interesting for me to hear And I want you to speak about it just for a moment Steve. There are Jews who would say why would any Jew who lost family in the Shoah want to go back and have any relationship with anything German but you're not the first person to describe what you've described. What is the what prompts somebody who has experienced that through his family to want to go back. And you said you went back every year and you have a relationship with the mayor. Yeah. Can you explain to us why so this I would
1: say That's a great question. My, I grew up in a home where you were not allowed to buy anything German. Okay, we didn't buy German products. My grandparents didn't have to go back. They wanted to bring my father back. Um, they wanted to bring any survivors back. And he wouldn't go because he felt, listen, you didn't want me while I was alive. Now that we're all dead, you want to bring me back. Yeah. In the end, though, he did go back. He did. In the end, he, in the end, he did a number of years later Why? before Why? he passed. Why? Sometimes time heals memories. I'll give you an example. Some of his boyhood friends, these were, these were Protestant Germans. A couple of them were Catholic Germans. He always kept a relationship with them. They were not Nazis, you know, and he always had a relationship. These were the children of people who worked for our family business in Germany. They would come to America to spend time with us. You know, I think sometimes time heals certain things. Um, I didn't have the, the, I didn't grow up there. I needed to see it, to feel it, to speak to the people, to see where our roots were from. So I, I had a different need psychologically than my
0: father did. I understand. I bring
1: my children, and we we have cousins all over the world. We have Zoom meetings, and we go to Germany. I try; I'm the one who tries to bring
0: them. Amazing. So, I've heard now your background, and you know, very often, I meet somebody on JBS or Achaim, and they're rabbis. And when you talk to them about their background, you know, they were in yeshivas, and you did not have any of that. As a child growing up. So I'm fascinated to know what prompted you, Steve, to become a rabbi. You
1: see, it was one it sort of fell into it. It was there was never an intention of becoming a rabbi.
0: It was it, an accident?
1: I'll share what happened. I mean, okay. I was I had one one of Rabbi Soloveitchik's, one of the greatest of his students over the 40 years was Aaron Khan, Aaron Khan. He's one of the great educators at YU. And I I studied under him all throughout undergrad. While I was getting the MBA in finance at NYU, I was able to continue studying while getting the MBA. And, you know, once I was there in the program, the graduate program, I was doing it for the theory. He said, look, take the exams. I got smicha. Um, One thing led to another. My, my, my brother actually married a young woman from Southfield, Michigan, this Jewish suburb of Detroit. So they said, look, you have the smicha, why don't you marry him? You know, you'd be the rabbi. So there were people out there that said, look, we're looking for a young rabbi for the synagogue. It was one of those deals, you know, it was. And uh, yeah, we were young. We said, well, let's, let's try It's like the Jewish Peace Corps, you know, let's try it for a couple of years. Well, one thing led to another. I ended up in Beverly Hills
0: and I ended up at the OU,
1: and now I have the blessing of being at the FIDF.
0: Okay, okay, but don't make it seem so easy. I understand. Come back one moment to, to Yeshiva University. You were studying for a master's at NYU, correct?
1: Yeah. So concurrently, uh, I studied for Smicha because I loved the learning. Love studying by Rabbi. Kahn. I see.
0: So you were studying Talmud already at yeshiva. Yeah. Okay. And so it wasn't much of a stretch for him to say to you, "Take the exam and get smicha." And so you did. But you still did not self-identify as somebody who wanted to be a pulpit rabbi. Correct.
1: I'll tell you a cute story. When my parents, they allowed me to go to the last two years of high school for a little bit of a Jewish education. Rabbi Riskin's high school, which today is Tell's, it's the former estate of Madam Sheng shek Max Stern of Hearts Mountain bought it. They had a high school there. And, you know, they took me in, a kid who had really no background. They were very gracious to me. You know, they, they got me up to snuff, et cetera. So my parents said, look, we'll let you go to New York City. We'll let you go to the yeshiva on one condition, the wiles give charity we don't take charity you can't become a rabbi you're not going to earn a salary from the jewish people we want you to give charity and unfortunately in the
0: end i didn't end up fulfilling that condition i understand um so with smicha, and then you marry you know, you do your first wedding and then you know you're a, you're a rabbi in oak park michigan and then you end up at beverly hills which synagogue Beth Jacob. Beth Jacob. How many families? We built it up to a little bit over 800 families. Which for
1: for Orthodox was probably, you know, other than KJ, was probably the largest Orthodox synagogue in America.
0: Okay. And uh, did you enjoy, when you were a rabbi in Beverly Hills, did you enjoy being a pulpit rabbi? Very much so. Because why? So I'm going to say the following.
1: Sometimes, you know, being lucky is the biggest blessing. I happened to be in Michigan. We, Our congregation were primarily Polish and Galician families, many of them Polish and Galician survivors, a couple of Slovakians. In Beverly Hills, our community was primarily three types, Hungarian, Marmarussian, the, Car- the Carpathian Mountains. You know, Elie Wizels from Siget from that area. To the, depending on the year, it was either Transylvania, the Ukraine, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, it all depended on what year it was in. But these were Maramureșian, Hungarian, and to a lesser degree, there were a few Polish and a few Slovakian survivors. And during my, my great blessing and honor of being the rabbi, many of them died during that period. And you know, you sit with the friends, you sit with the siblings, the children, the grandchildren, the spouses, and you learn about their lives. As they're aging, you know, as people age, they talk more about their past, their history. When they're trying to earn a living and just to support a family, they're not thinking about that. But sometimes later in life, they wanna have their grandchildren should know their legacy. Many of them, I'll give you an example, Ben Shapiro was a kid at the time in high school. He was a ghostwriter. That's how he made money for a lot of the survivors in our congregation.
0: Okay, and we should identify Ben Shapiro is now a leading podcast journalist uh, on the conservative side of the spectrum, but he is a mega personality now in the podcast world. And obviously he remains a committed Orthodox Jew. He always wears a yarmulke and whether he's on television or whether he's doing his podcast, he identifies as an Orthodox Jew. You're telling me his family was part of the Beverly Hills congregation that you ben, were-
1: actually, they lived in the Valley, but it, Ben went to Eula High School, Yashiva University of Los Angeles High School. So, you know, so he, he was friendly with a lot of the kids in our area. And um, it, was, it was interesting because learning from many of them, their lives, what they went through, I feel if I would live three or four lifetimes, I could never have the richness of life that many of them had. And, and that profound, had a profound impact on me as a person, my study of Jewish history, my perspective of the future of the Jewish people was really learning at, at very tense, at very crucial and very significant times in the lives of these survivors. And it wasn't to say we didn't have other, we had many, many other congregants, but they were a very significant minority in the congregation in both places that shaped me.
0: You know, you were very lucky. Not every rabbi has that kind of experience. By the way, were there any other celebrity people in your congregation being in Beverly Hills?
1: Oh, plenty. I mean, I'll give you an example. Steven Spielberg and Kate Capshaw were members. You know, we had their kids bar mitzvahs. Um, Steven was a very humble person, very fine person, very thoughtful, introspective person we didn't have that many actors but we had an incredible number of writers producers and agents in our in our community
0: and did you find that they had a commitment to Judaism no less so or no more so but certainly no less so than your average congregant
1: they were i mean i'll tell you it was it was an incredibly eclectic creative community you had engineers and people that were heads of defense departments. I'll give you an example, one of our pillars of our community, he developed all of the electronics for the stealth bomber. A lot of the cutting edge stealth technology that's used in aircraft today came from his division. It was TRW Northrop Grunman. At first it was Grunman and Northrop Grunman and you know, TRW Northrop and Grunman. In fact, he actually testified uh, against the antitrust challenge in front of the Senate. Um, it was just a great. And you had real estate developers. You it had professionals.
0: Like, it sounds like a lot of fun. You know, um, by the way, when you someone looks at your bio, it says you delivered invocations for President George Bush, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, Speaker of the House John Boehner. How did that happen?
1: There was a... Um, a major fundraiser for President Bush and Vice President Cheney was kicking off. Now, the Bush years, if I'm correct, were 2000 through 2008. So this was kicking off the 2004, you know, where he ran against John Kerry. So they asked me to give the invocation, it was interesting. It was Johnny Mathis, Kelsey Grammer, myself and Dennis Miller. Where was it? It was at the the time it was called the Century Plaza.
0: Okay, so basically people came to California and as a rabbi of the community, you often were asked to do an invocation.
1: Yeah, and with the same thing with Governor Schwarzenegger. Um, with, with John Boehner, I was here actually in New York with, with, with uh, Speaker of the House Boehner. In fact, we had, you know, we're we're part of what's called Nor Tenek, So we support, it's bipartisan, it's a pro-Israel PAC. And we had the Speaker of the House Boehner at our home. Um, he himself is a religious Catholic, and uh, you know, he invited me to come and to give the invocation to the House of Representatives.
0: Very so was a Very nice. Uh, okay, you describe how you had a good time being a pulpit rabbi. So Steve, why did you leave? Well, I'll say this, being a pulpit rabbi and
1: doing a fine job of it, it's 24 seven. Yes. Let me tell you that. Look, we built up the congregation. We took over. We built up a day school. We're very involved in that. The people in California were incredibly gracious, incredibly good, decent, eclectic, interesting. But, you know, to be able to read, to be able to travel, I, I do these Jewish history cruises and tours every year. I couldn't do that one in a rabbi. You can't just leave for 10 days and leave your congregation.
0: Oh wait, um, you, you were scholar in residence on land and sea on these cruises. What were the areas in which you spoke or taught?
1: The Baltics, we do all of Baltic, you Jewish history, but, but the Baltics is obviously more, we do Russian Jewish history under Tsarist Russia, um, the Mediterranean. So what we'll do is we'll start in Spain, we do Spanish Jewish history, then as, as the cruise goes, we'll do various parts of the Western Mediterranean, Italian Jewish history, and then end off in Provençal, you know, Southern French
0: Jewish history. And uh, you, we are, usually... you are schooled in the history of these various communities? Yeah. That's marvelous.
1: Do tours. Um, we're actually, this coming summer, we, we're going to be doing, if, if we come out of COVID, a river cruise along the Danube. You know, we'll do it. We're going to be doing... We'll first do a Shabbos, a Shabbat in in Prague. Then we'll do, you know, Bratislava, Budapest, Vienna, Linz. So it's, these are great areas to do history. Delicious. We did, we've done trips to Morocco, Moroccan Jewish history.
0: I should have asked you, you have a family of your own? Seven children.
1: My, I think my wife would probably view me as the worst. I'm the eighth child, you know. (laughs) <laughs> give her, give him, definitely give her more work than the seven others.
0: Seven children. That's a, that's a double Mazal What is your wife's name? Yael. Yael. And your seven children. Also
1: right? referred to as my better half.
0: What is the uh, age range of your seven children?
1: Our oldest Malki who's a veterinarian is 29. And our youngest Rafi is 16. He's a junior in high school.
0: All right. So, What you were saying, and I interrupted you, was that I said to you, why did you give up being a pulpit rabbi when you seem to have such a wonderful experience? And your answer in part was, it's a 24 seven job. And as much as you liked it, I assume what you were saying was it wears on a person.
1: You know, at the OU, we were able to do something fascinating. It's not me on the front line but it was me supporting the people on the front line we had a staff that developed something called the jewish student union where we were in literally 265 270 public schools throughout the length and breadth of north america and we had a chance to 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 impact and engage unaffiliated jews throughout the length and breadth of north america That was really an incredible opportunity to do something where where we're empowering the next generation. It's very different than the pulpit, but yet it gives you the time and the luxury and the freedom to read, to study, to do things where you're not under a gun. You're not going from a hospital to a cemetery. You're not going to a wedding, to a bar mitzvah. You understand? It's a very very different life.
0: Yes, I understand very, very well. And you articulate it beautifully. But now tell us, first, how did you end up at the Orthodox Union? It could have been one of any kind of organizations. And by the way, you should explain to our viewers what the Orthodox Union is and what it does.
1: So we're probably in, I know it's not a great analogy today, but let's go back 10 years ago. We're the general electric of non-for-profits, meaning one division is, it's the mothership to all of the Orthodox synagogues throughout the length and breadth of North America. That's true. But that's only one small division. You know, the, the one division that I was mentioning is, is it's the largest Jewish youth group in the world, is JSU, the Jewish Student Union. And the primary consumer of that are unaffiliated Jews. You know, and you, we, we are the platform, we were the fifth largest birthright provider, Israel Free Spirit, also engaging unaffiliated Jews we have a group called Yachad, a whole division that deals with developmentally disabled Jews in making sure that they have inclusion and the opportunity to experience the richness of Jewish life that others have. So in that sense, you had this mother organization that we ran that did the accounting, the fundraising, did the technology, the HR for nine or 10 different non-for-profits. That's essentially what the OU is. The most famous that everyone knows it is, is the kosher, the kosher certification, yes. where what happened was in probably almost, I would say almost 90 countries, we had thousands and thousands of products that, that, that were under our supervision. And any revenue generated from that was given back to the Jewish people, was given back to the Jewish community mm-hmm. through these nine or 10 non-for-profits that we oversaw.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you decide of all the organizations you might work for, or what caused, you know, what was the sequence of events that brought you to the OU? So we were a very involved OU
1: synagogue in Beverly Hills. And the, the president of the OU at the time recruited me. Incredible man, incredible leader by the name of Steve Savitsky. He had a wonderful team of lay leaders. And we were able to put together an incredible team of professionals. We recruited one of our best lay leaders, a gentleman by the name of Alan Fagan, yeah. who was stepping down as the managing director of Proskauer. And he joined me and he became our operations person, our executive vice president who drove yeah. the organization.
0: Yeah. He did a fabulous, he just recently resigned. Yeah. He's retired. I don't know what he's going to be doing now. Uh, all right all that is wonderful. And then the question obviously leads to, holy cow, Steve, you were tapped to be the first non-military, non-Israeli to become national director of the FIDF, the Friends of the IDF, which is a now a major force on the American Jewish scene and does extraordinary work for Israeli soldiers. How did that happen? Well, it's, you know, it's actually the first 25 years of the
1: organization, it was always an American CEO. But the last 15 years, it's always gone to a general. But, but the his, history of the organization actually always did have an American CEO originally. I was actually at the White House. We were, we were at the um, President Trump's, the Hanukkah party. And I was, you know, it was there with a few of uh, s- significant donors from the OU that I took, and a few, couple of people came over to me, said we need to talk to you. We want, we would like to meet with you. Yes. I said, well, you know, I assume that maybe they wanted to go out for a cigar and drink afterwards to Shelley's back room, or that's, or yeah, that's what i was assuming. Oh no, we want, we want to talk to you. We want to come to New York. Okay. One thing led to another. It happened to be a couple of the board members of the FIDF. And I have to to say how embarrassed I am. I'm a person who attended many FIDF dinners. We always had a Shabbaton in Beverly Hills, always an FIDF Shabbaton. In many, not many, but a number of dinners in New York. And I'm I'm embarrassed to say, I really didn't understand the incredible transformative programming, the whole strategic transformation of the future of Israel that the FIDF does. And, you know, as I started to learn about it. Yes. It became really interesting. It went from being a meeting with some interesting people to something that became fascinating and really interesting.
0: Okay, this is slightly out of order, but I want you to develop that idea. In what way is the FIDF in some way transforming, helping to transform Israeli society?
1: Well, the mistake that, that people like myself made Not that we believe that the FIDF was funding machine guns, bullets, and and combat boots. That's not not. true, which it does not As, But with the FIDF, I'll give you an example. I've been sitting, whether it's the chief of staff, whether it's the, the generals that oversee the manpower division of the army, whether it's a number of other generals from other divisions. We sit there, and the question is, these young men and these young women who are investing three or four or six years of their life For the Jewish people, how can we invest in them? How can we enable them to fly and and to be able to give 60 or 70 years back to the Jewish people? It's all about whether it's educational, whether it's about unification, whether it's about transformative solutions. And, And we'll get into it, we'll share some of the things that we do. That's, you know, just to give you a simple example. Our chairman, Peter Weintraub, who's a superstar, right? Rabbi Peter Weintraub. And by the way, I've never met anyone who said no to him because he's just, there's a powerful, passionate, engaged Jew who just cares about the Jewish people. He and his wife, Ellen, you know, just superstars. So they, every year, provide scholarships. It's the first time in the history of these families that anyone ever went to university. Who is it? There's two criteria. It's someone who either fought in a combat or combat support unit, number one. Number two is they have to be below a certain socioeconomic bar. They're coming from a family that's financially challenged. And here we give them a full university scholarship. They become an impact scholar, plus spending money for books and for the needs that they have. Not to mention that there's 16,000 of them. I mean, we've changed Israel because they would not have gone to university. They couldn't have afforded that opportunity. Yes. And on top of that, we partner with the army in another project called Horizon, where we provide two thirds of, of their university education to thousands and thousands of others. I mean, that's a simple example because you know, I, I always think of the American model. Israel, as you know, is a European university model. So they're coming out an engineer, they're coming out a computer programmer, a doctor, a psychologist. They're coming out an attorney. You know, we're prov- it's we're providing them the ability to provide for their families and to build the nation.
0: By the way, I love the way you say it. I love what FIDF does. I already told you, Peter and I and Ellen. Peter and Ellen go back a million years, and I agree with. Exactly the way you describe them. But the work that the FIDF is doing is it's it's not about war and it's not about guns. It's about people. And over and over again, you as a rabbi know this, the Jewish tradition is all about people. How do we treat each other? And how do we help each other grow? And how do we sustain each other in times of difficulty? And the FIDF has become a leader in that area. And it sounds to me like the perspective you're going to bring is only going to enhance what they do. So kolakavod to you. And I, I can only imagine the good you're going to do, how lucky the FIDF is, and therefore how lucky the Jewish community is that you've decided to spend now the next part of your life devoting yourself to enhancing Israel through the many, many things that FIDF does. So, as I said, ko a kavod to you, it's lovely.
1: Thank you. You know, you know there's a term that, that many Jews in America use, social justice. No one does more social justice. And the point, Mark, that you made You know, think about America today where members of their own family don't talk to each other. You can't talk to someone from a different political party. They, in Israel, this one is Ethiopian. This one's a kid from North Africa. This one is a child of Mizrahi, of Iraqis. This one's from the Ukraine. This one, the family-made Aliyah from South Africa. And this is a lone soldier from America. And they have to learn how to figure it out together. we fund that the ability of them to live together to grow together and that's why i'm so optimistic about the future of the jewish people because here we are from five continents 70 different countries and we're all coming together and and you know what what, what blew me away and this is as a volunteer before i started during these quarantines like the first quarantine who's providing the pharmaceuticals the food to arab communities It's the soldiers. And you see these pictures, they've all got their masks on, but the Imams are embracing the commanders. B'nai Brak, an ultra-Orthodox community, the most dense community population-wise in all of Israel, the soldiers are knocking at the door. Can we have your chametz? We know you're in quarantine. We're gonna burn the chametz before Pesach. They work with the soup kitchens to provide a Passover meal, the Seder meal. It's just it, It brought the whole nation together. So on the one hand, they're defending the Northern border against the Shia. They're def- defending the Southern border against the Sunni Hamas and the home front, they're bringing people together. And that's, we, we were able to fund this.
0: Just marvelous. By the way, you heard me in the open describe my own personal experience and how very impressed I am with the quality of character of the young people who I meet, who are in the IDF. And by the way, I, you know, I say to myself, the FIDF is bringing the most beautiful, the most articulate of all the soldiers they can find. But even when I'm not doing it through FIDF, and I meet Israeli soldiers, and they come on Lachaim, or they're all, they, so impressive. And I was wondering if you've experienced anything similar to that.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a German, so we don't cry very easily. But sometimes, you know, you meet these soldiers, you just want to cry. Yeah. They're so beautiful. You know what I mean? You, you say, you, Mark, I say to myself, boy, do we have an incredible future with these young women and these young men. You know, it's the best stock on the market is the future of the Jewish people. Look, they just broke 9.1 million at Rosh Hashanah. If the Jewish birth rate and the Arab birth rate stay the same. The demographers are saying we're gonna break 12 million Israelis. Can you imagine that? The British said this whole land couldn't handle 600,000 at most. and here, we've got 12 million Israelis and and with the water technology that comes out of these young men and young women, we've got enough water for everybody to drink. We've got enough land for everyone to live. It's it's just so exciting to work with them.
0: Uh, Another kind of question Again, you heard me mention this, reference mm-hmm. it. I'd love to know what your experience is and what your thoughts are. There are a lot of people who demonize the IDF. And you know, I was watching an old television series called Quantico. It's about young recruits to the FBI. And one is a gay conservative Jew, but it turns out he's not gay And he's there because he's a very troubled person. Why? In this TV series, he was part of the IDF and the IDF sent him into Gaza and the things he did in Gaza, he has to live with now the rest of his life and they are tearing him apart. Now we're not told what he did in Gaza, but the implication is the IDF was involved in some kind of brutality. And very often the IDF is castigated and is cast as if it is brutalizing innocent Palestinians, it's rousting them out of bed, it's breaking into their homes, it's beating them, it's killing them for no reason. And so many people have bought into that warped description of the IDF. I want you to speak to that for one moment. Now you're the national director of FIDF. What do you say?
1: So I've had the blessing, and this is before I get it all involved with the FIDF, of going to West Point with Brigadier General Ben C. Gruber. He's invited, sometimes twice a year, but for sure every year, to West Point to speak to the the senior cadets, and he's invited to Colorado Springs to speak to the senior cadets of the Air Force. And what does he do? Besides being a brigadier general, he also happens to have been incredibly learned from a legal point of view in what the Israelis call tohar haneshik, the purity of war, meaning war ethics, military ethics. You and I would call it asymmetrical warfare where you're fighting an enemy who's not wearing a uniform. So you know, in the history of war over the last 100 years, and they've studied, do you know what the fine, outside of Israel, you know what the finest ratio was of enemy combatants who are not wearing a military uniform to innocent civilians? It was the British conquest of Fallujah in Persian Gulf too. 23 to one was the ratio. We in America, our ratio of innocent civilians that killed to enemy combatants, to terrorists, between Afghanistan and Iraq, our ratio was 30 to one. The last two battles in Gaza, now these are not Israeli records, these are Hamas figures, okay? These are Hamas figures. The last two battles, it was two to one, and then in 24, protective edge, it was one to one. In other words, Israel is so off the charts, I was there. Not only was I there, I have right now I'm telling you I, I'm breaking out in goosebumps. He got a standing ovation for two and a half, three minutes from the cadets at at West Point when he was done. Mm-hmm. And you know what the questions they had for him? They couldn't understand the Israelis. They couldn't understand why wouldn't you kill in this situation? Why wouldn't you shoot in this situation? Why did you pull off the Apache helicopter in this situation? They couldn't understand. they thought the Israelis. We're mad, we're absurd for, for the restraint that they show, putting their own soldiers in harm's way for the benefit of the civilians that are in the proximity of the combatants, the civilians that could be collateral damage for the terrorists. It is so, by the way, it's not absurd, it's evil. What what these people say about Israel, if they had any intellectual honesty, if they did any study, they would kiss Israel's feet. They would put on a flag all over the world, the flag of the IDF and the flag of Israel. There is no more moral army on the face of the earth. Are there bad apples? There could always be a bad apple but that's not how you're judged. You're judged by how you respond to the bad apples. You're, you're judged by how they train these young men and these young women. And I'll tell you, you know what, you, Brigadier General, how he answered the cadets at, at West Point? And I'm telling you, Mark, I was there. I'm telling you this firsthand. I was a witness. Ani hagever, as Jeremiah said, right? You know what he said? He said, it's, it's, yes, it is about the Palestinians. There, because there's 50,000 evil, terrorists in Gaza doesn't mean we're going to punish a population of 2 million. He said, but it's as much about the Jews. He says, I don't want that young man or that young woman coming back and having to live with the rest of their life that they took someone's life they didn't have to take. That young man has to become a father, has to become a husband, has to become an engineer, has to function for the next 70 years of his life or 60 years of his life. He says, and I have a moral and ethical responsibility to who they are. And the people in West Point were shocked, but their response to him was an over. it was a standing ovation. The whole major auditorium in West Point, it was incredible. It was just a sight to see. So, anyone who spews that filth, that vile hatred, is out. to to only poison is out to hurt and is out to lie.
0: Thank you, Steve, that was wonderful. Uh, We're near the end. Um, You've described the work you're gonna be doing with the FIDF and the fabulous work it does in general. I want a sense of just a little bit about how you view American Jewish life today. There are two threats to American Jewish life one is identified as anti-semitism and the second is it is identified as assimilation in your mind steve between assimilation and anti-semitism where's the greater threat
1: all oh, assimilation all the way look you know look, look at their they're having 3.1 children per woman in israel Now in america Pull out the orthodox for a second the orthodox are having 4.45 but the mainstream community the majority of american jewry is having 1.3 children per woman just to just to reproduce ourselves we have to have 2.2 and then when we lose we lose our people you know we're losing our future and the challenge we have and this is something that we did at the ou is how to connect american jews to three things their history, and their tradition, what we say, their Mesorah, to connect them to the big family of the Jewish people. And the big family of the Jewish people evermore is in Israel. And then to connect them to Israel. It's not about politics. Look at what happens at birthright. I'm telling you not only Israel Free Spirit, the birthright that we ran, I'm telling you the exact same exit surveys of every birthright out there. The number one takeaway, and remember who goes on birthright, most of the participants on birthright are not coming from an affiliated home. They're not reformed, they're not conservative, they're not orthodox. The majority of participants are coming from an unaffiliated home. The number one takeaway is not Shabbat in Yerushalayim, that's number two. Going to the hotel, having a Friday night, a Shabbat dinner with an Israeli family. You know what number one is? The Mifgash, the encounter of spending peer-to-peer time for 10 days with those Israeli soldiers, their peers, becoming friends with the Israelis. And that's our job at FIDF, is to connect all segments of American Jews, all segments of American Jews with Israel. It's not about politics, it's not about culture, it's about bringing the family together. And we have a chance to to build a dream you know, we're blessed. You and I are blessed that, that we were able to live in the, the one time in Jewish, the one time in the annals of all of human history that this ancestral people, as my father would say, have returned, the refugees have returned home after 2000 years and we get to build it. We get to build the dream one soldier at a time.
0: You are fabulous, Steve. And I am thrilled to have met you through Lechayim and JBS. I cannot wait until there's an opportunity for me to have a dinner with you, lunch with you. I hope we are together in many instances, in many contexts for a long time. I hope you'll let me turn to you to have you comment on things that are going on in the Jewish world. I hope you'll keep me informed of things that are happening at the FIDF Whenever we can highlight the things you are doing, you know I am thrilled to do so. But I wish you personally now, again, I said at the beginning, I want to say it again, you should only have good, wonderful experiences, success, help to build the FIDF even more than it has been, and you and I will stay close forever. Thank you very much for the time, Steve.
1: It's an honor and a blessing to be on your show, Mark. Thank you.
0: You be well. Thank you so much. Rabbi Stephen Wheel, the new national director and CEO of the Friends of the IDF. I hope you've enjoyed meeting him. A most impressive human being. And aren't we lucky to have people like Steve helping to lead Jewish life today? It makes one a bit optimistic, I must say. As always, I invite you to be in touch with me with any thoughts or comments you may have to any of the ideas expressed on this edition of L'Chaim. Please email me. Or you can write me. And remember, you can take L'Chaim with you now wherever you go. L'Chaim is now a podcast. And so until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'Chaim, my friends, to life
1: is a presentation of Jewish Education in Media. We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double high or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can
0: send your tax deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS pledge line
1: at 833 myjbs tv That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our
0: compliments. We thank you for your kind support.